Okay, so welcome back to another lecture in contract law. In this lecture, we're going to continue to talk about unfair terms in contract law, focusing our energies in particular on exclusion clauses and limitation of liability clauses, which, as I mentioned in the previous lecture, are the quintessential example of an unfair term, something that courts are suspicious about. But as I mentioned as well, there are other examples of unfair terms. In principle, anything can count as an unfair term. And one of the things that I mentioned in the previous lecture is that if you want to have something like an exclusion clause incorporated into a contract and made effective, you have to clear certain hurdles. You have to make sure that it is valid under the common law rules. It has to be incorporated and it has to be interpreted in a way that covers the liability that you want to avoid. And we discussed some of the issues with that in detail. You also have to make sure that it is valid under statute law and under EU law. So we'll discuss both of those features today. Now I'm going to spend most of my time talking about the statutory regulations and the regulations under the Sale of Goods and Supply of Services Act of 1980. I will mention the EU law, the EC directive in particular on unfair terms towards the end, but I'm not going to go into it in detail. And there's a reason why I won't go into it in detail that I'll mention when we get to it. So look, as you will recall from the lectures that we had on implied terms of contract, there are a number of key provisions in the Sale of Goods Acts, uh, the 1980 Act, uh, which amends the 1893 Act. And these all cover certain conditions regarding the sale of goods and supply of services that have to be implied into a contract, that have to be included. So there's Section 12, which is the implied condition that you actually have the right to sell what you're selling. There's Section 13, which implies a condition in any sale by description that the goods must match the description. There's section 14, which is the famous one that you're probably familiar with, that there's an implied condition that goods supplied are of merchantable quality and or fit for any specified purpose. There's section 15, which is the implied condition that goods sold by sample must match the sample. And then there's also section 39, which is an implied condition in a contract for the supply of services, that the person supplying the services has the necessary skill, care, and diligence to supply the service, and that any goods used or supplied as part of the service will be fit for purpose or of a merchantable quality. So since these are all implied conditions of contract, you might wonder, can you exclude liability for breach of those conditions? Can you somehow specify within the contract that you are not liable if the goods don't match description, or you're not liable if the goods are not of merchantable quality? So the general rule here is that you can't, but it's complicated, and there are some exceptions. There are some cases in which you can exclude or limit liability for a breach of those conditions. And to understand this, it's worth, again, dividing the two types of contracts up. So we'll look at contracts first for the sale of goods and then for the supply of services. So section 55 of the 1893 Sale of Goods Act, as amended by section 22 of the 1980 Act, so I mentioned this complication previously, that although people often refer to the 1980 Act, the 1980 Act often just amends the older 1893 Act, and it's still that 1893 Act that remains in force. So section 55 of the 1893 Act, as amended, states the following. Subject to the subsequent provisions of this section, where any duty or liability would arise under a contract of sale of goods by implication of law, it may be negatived or varied by express agreement 
or by the course of dealing between the parties, or by usage, if the usage is such as to bind both parties to the contract. So that's a general statement that, suggesting that you can avoid or exclude liability for breach of con the conditions set down in this Act by express agreement. But then there's qualification, so subsection 2 of section 55, or sorry, subsection 3 of section 55 states that in the case of a contract for the sale of goods, any term of that or any other contract exempting from all or any of the provisions of section 12, which is the implied condition that you have the right to sell goods, shall be void. So you can't exclude liability for that. And then also then in subsection 4, it states that in the case of a contract of sale of goods, any term of that or any other contract exempting from all or any of the provisions of section 13, 14, and 15 of this act shall be void where the buyer deals as a consumer and shall, in any other case, not be enforceable unless it is shown that it is fair and reasonable. So that's kind of the key one here, subsection 4, because it states that, as a general rule of thumb, any attempt to avoid liability for, say, the breach of the condition on merchantable quality shall be void in only a limited range of circumstances or in certain circumstances. So number one, where the buyer deals as a consumer. So that seems to rule out business-to-business -business contracts. And then it goes on to say that even in the business-to-business -business contracts, it's only going to be enforceable, the exclusion clause, if it can be shown that it is fair and reasonable. So we'll talk about all this again in a moment. That's section 55 of the 1893 Act, dealing with sale of goods contracts. What about Supply of Services Acts? So we have section 40 of the 1980 Act, and that's correct, I mean the 1980 Act, not the 1893 Act. The main innovation of the 1980 Act is that it covers supply of services contracts, not just sale of goods contracts. So section 40 of the, 18, sorry, of the 1980 Act states the following. Subject to the following provisions of this section, this is subsection 1, any term of a contract implied by virtue of Section 39 of the 1980 Act may be negatived or varied by an express term of the contract or by the course of dealing between the parties or by usage, if the usage be such as to bind both parties to the contract, except that where the recipient of the service deals as a consumer, it must be shown that the express term is fair and reasonable and has been specifically brought to his attention. So what does that say? That says that you can have an exclusion clause covering section 30, the implied condition under section 39. As you recall, that has to do with the person being competent to supply the service and that any goods as part of the service are of merchantable quality. So you, you can exclude liability for that or avoid liability for that. But where the person purchasing the service deals as a consumer, so in a non-business-to-business contract, it must be shown that that exclusion clause is fair and reasonable and that it has actually been brought to the party's attention. So look, summarizing from all of that, what we can say is that you can sometimes avoid or exclude liability for a breach of the implied conditions under the Sale of Goods Act of 1893 and the Supply of Services Act of 1980, but you can't do that in certain circumstances. And in particular, the sections cover two important variables. Consumer contracts, where you, again, when you don't have business-to-business -business contracts, or they use this phrase where you deal as a consumer, and then also 
they have to show that the term in question is fair and reasonable. So let's talk about both of those things. What does it mean to deal as a consumer? And what does it mean for a term, for an exclusion clause in this instance, to be fair and reasonable? So in terms of dealing as a consumer, this is something that is explicitly covered by Section 3 of the Sale of Goods Act of 1980. And it states that a party to a contract is said to deal as a consumer in relation to another if... He neither makes the contract in the course of a business nor holds himself out as doing so, and the other party does make the contract in the course of a business, and the goods or services supplied under or in pursuance of the contract are of a type ordinarily supplied for private use or consumption. So that's kind of helpful, but maybe not hugely helpful. So what it's really doing, what Section 3 is doing, is drawing an important distinction between consumer contracts and commercial contracts. So if you're a business contracting with another business, then you probably won't fall foul of these provisions of the 1980 Act and 1893 Act. But if you're a business dealing with a consumer, then you will and you'll have to take extra care. And indeed, uh, Section 3, subject, Section 2 of the 1980 Act, which I've provided the full text of it in the notes for this course, it seems to create a presumption in favor of assuming that somebody is dealing as a consumer, unless proven otherwise. So it's worth thinking about how this has been applied in practice. And one of the scenarios that arises as a, a common concern is, again, imagine you have a business that's contracting for a product or service that is not really part of its own business, but is just incidental or peripheral to its business. So one of the examples I use here has to, you know, imagine the university purchasing drinks vending machines for use on campus or leasing them or renting them out are they dealing as a consumer in that case well look there are some illustrations or some case law that kind of deal with this scenario so one of the famous irish cases is o'callaghan versus hamilton leasing ireland it's a 1984 decision so here you have the plaintiff who owns a takeaway business in Louth, known as magnet takeaway foods and in 1982, he leases a slush puppy iced drink dispensing unit for use in his business. Now, this machine was not operated on a self-service basis, and some of you probably seen this, that the product still exists to this day. Rather, O'Callaghan used to dispense the drinks himself from the machine to the customers. Now, the machine turned out to be defective, and so the plaintiff, uh, O'Callaghan, tried to sue for damages under Section 14 of the Sale of Goods Act, and that's the section that deals with goods of merchantable quality. The defendants, however, tried to rely on an exclusion clause, limiting or avoiding liability for that. But the plaintiff argued that this was invalid under the terms of the Act, because you can't avoid liability for such a clause when you're dealing with a consumer. And so he was arguing that he was a consumer of the slush puppy dispensing unit in this case. Now, in this case, Justice McWilliams said, no, you're definitely dealing as a business here, okay? Now, you might be a consumer of the product in some sense, in that, you know, you don't own and control it directly, you're leasing it from the person that owns and controls it, but you were clearly using the machine as part of a business, your takeaway foods business, and you were not using it for private purposes or for private consumption. And it's also not the type of good that would ordinarily be supplied for that purpose, you know, one of the drinks that you dispense from the unit might be supplied for that purpose, but the actual unit itself isn't. Now, there's another decision made in the very same year by the very same judge, which is also influential in this area. 
And that's the case of Cunningham versus Woodchester Investments Limited. This is a high court decision in Ireland, and the plaintiff here, Cunningham, is the bursar of the Salesian Agricultural College in Meath. And this is a not-for-profit college. And as part of running this college, the plaintiff, Cunningham, purchases an electronic telephone system for the college from the defendant company. And although some installation work was done on this telephone equipment, it was not completed and the outcome was deemed to be most unsatisfactory from the college's perspective. So the plaintiff sued for breach of contract on the grounds that this was contrary to the provisions of the 1980 Act. It was defective service, defective product. So the defendants tried to rely upon a condition in the original contract stating that the leasee's initial acceptance of the delivery of equipment was taken to be proof that the equipment in question was fit for purpose. So the question is whether this limitation of liability, or sorry, exclusion of liability clause is valid. And obviously Cunningham is arguing that it isn't because he's not dealing as a business here, he's dealing as a consumer. But McWilliam, Justice McWilliam again said that that wasn't true and that he was not dealing as a consumer. So what did he actually say in the case? He said that the evidence in this case indicates that the equipment to be supplied was mainly or largely to be used in the course of the farming activities, although I'm sure it was also used for other purposes within the college as well. Furthermore, the equipment was quite clearly not of a type ordinarily supplied for private use or consumption. So, I mean, the Irish position from these cases seems to be a fairly restrictive one when it comes to business-to-business contracts, at least, that if you're a business, even a not-for-profit business, like the Salesian Agricultural College, dealing with another business, and you're purchasing a product that is going to be used in the course of your business, then you're dealing as a business, and so you're not entitled to the same level of protection as a consumer under the 1980 Act and 1893 Act. So exclusion of liability for the implied conditions under both acts uh, may be valid in your case. Now it's interesting to note that the English position in relation to dealing as a consumer, which I haven't really discussed, is a little bit different and it suggests that it may actually be more protective of businesses and there needs to be some regularity in the type of contractual exchange involved before it counts as a business-to-business transaction. But I'm not going to get into the nuances of the English position in this set of lectures. Now, the other feature of the 1893 Act and the 1980 Act, as you'll recall from the wording that I read out earlier on, is that exclusion of liability clauses for the implied conditions, even if they are valid, even if we're not dealing with a consumer contract, they have to be fair and reasonable in the circumstances. So this is actually a concept or idea that has been developed by common law courts and has been a feature of statutory law for quite some time, but there is a non-exhaustive definition of what would make a term fair and reasonable or unfair and unreasonable set out in the schedule to the 1980 Supply of, sorry, Sale of Goods and Supply of Services Act. And basically it says that there are five factors that need to be taken into consideration by the courts when determining whether an exclusion of liability or limitation of liability clause is fair and reasonable. And it's worth noting here before we continue that the same five factors are listed in an English Act, uh, the Unfair Contract Terms Act of 1977, which 
is essentially what the Irish legislature were copying with the 1980 Act. And it's also very similar to the five factors that you find, or sorry, there's more factors, but it's similar to the factors that you find in the EC unfair terms and contract law directive. So it's worth paying attention to this because these are five conditions or factors that are of fairly universal application. So the first of the five factors that have to be borne in mind is that in assessing whether a term is fair and reasonable, regard must be had for the strength of the bargaining positions of the parties relative to each other, taking into account, among other things, any alternative means by which the customer's requirements could have been met. So this kind of gets at an idea that's prevalent in common law that there is this phenomenon of inequality of bargaining power when it comes to contracts, that some parties have more power to control the terms and conditions of a contract than others. And you have to factor that power imbalance in when you're interpreting the fairness of a term. And the other thing that's key within this factor is that, okay, it might be that you are the weaker party in a contractual negotiation, but if you can just go to another seller or vendor of a product or service and get a better deal, then maybe you're not actually that powerless. And so that would also have to be factored in when it comes to construing or determining whether the term was unfair. And one thing that has actually emerged in the case law is that in saying that, well, the consumer or the weaker party can go elsewhere to get a better deal, Elsewhere does not actually have to be another person or party. It could just be an alternative price or an alternative contract that's offered by the very same vendor. And so this is important because obviously businesses often offer different standards of product or different services uh, for a premium or for a lower rate, depending on the type of customer that they're dealing with. So there's a case on this point that's worth mentioning. is the case of Woodman versus Photo Trading Processing of 1981. This is an English decision. Here you have the plaintiffs who buy their wedding photographs from the defendants. The defendants agree to process and print these photographs, and the contract concluded between the parties included a clause that excluded liability if the photos were lost and limited liability with respect to the replacement of any photos. Now, sure enough, in this case, the photographs were lost and the defendants tried to rely upon this exclusion clause. And the court held that they couldn't rely upon this clause because they learned that in the wedding photo industry, it was a standard practice to offer customers two different prices, price points when they're purchasing the photographs. One of these prices included an express commitment to take more care with the product to avoid maybe the problem of it being lost. And because the plaintiff in this case was not offered a second price, with the extra care, the exclusion clause in question was not fair and reasonable. But by the same token, if they had been offered that second price point, it would have been construed as fair and reasonable, or that seems to be the implication, at least, of the judgment. So that's the first of the five factors that you have to bear in mind when determining whether a term is fair and reasonable. The second factor, factor B, is that regard must be had for whether the customer received an inducement to agree to the term in question, or in accepting it had an opportunity of entering into a similar contract with other persons, but without the same term. So this is pointing to a very similar idea that, as the first factor, that number one, if you have an alternative option that doesn't include this exclusion clause, then maybe it is fair and reasonable. 
But it's also highlighting another thing, which is that sometimes you get deals to enter into contracts on less favorable terms. So you get a reduced price if you enter into the contract on less favorable terms. And so what this factor is saying is that if you had such an inducement, it's less likely to be the case that an exclusion clause is going to be construed as being unfair or unreasonable. That brings us then to the third factor that we have to bear in mind, and it's the following, that regard must be had for whether the customer knew or ought to reasonably have known of the existence and extent of the term, having regard, among other things, to any custom of the trade or any previous course of dealing between the parties. So this is just really uh, setting down on a statutory footing an idea that is prevalent in the common law anyway, which has to do with reasonable notice with respect to exclusion clauses. And we've covered this already in some detail. And I guess the gist of the idea here is that if an exclusion clause has been brought to the attention of somebody and they ought to have known of its existence, it's less likely that it's going to be viewed as unfair and unreasonable. Although, again, the other factors still need to be borne in mind here. And so when applying this factor, all the rules about reasonable notice and incorporation apply. So I guess the modern dominant position is the position in the interphoto case, where whether notice is reasonable, whether something has been drawn to a party's attention, will depend in part or is a function in part of how onerous or unusual the exclusion clause in question is. So you might recall the Interphoto case itself where you had this rather large penalty for a failure to return photographs after a certain number of days had elapsed and that was deemed to be not incorporated into the contract because it was so unusual and onerous and insufficient notice had been given of this term. That then brings us to the fourth factor that courts have to bear in mind when determining whether a term is unfair or unreasonable. And that is the following, that regard must be had for where the term excludes or restricts any relevant liability if some condition is not complied with, whether it was reasonable at the time of the contract to expect that compliance with that condition would be practicable. So that might sound a little bit obscure, but there's actually a very familiar example of it. So it's common in a lot of consumer contracts to have your rights or entitlements to repayment or return of a product or repair of product to be limited based on notification period. So sometimes you'll say that, oh, you have to notify the manufacturer or the seller of a fault or a problem with the product within a certain number of days in order to get your entitlement to repair or replacement product. And oftentimes those kinds of notification periods within contracts, those are valid, and that's a valid way of limiting liability. But one thing that you need to bear in mind or ask is whether it is actually practicable, whether it's practically possible to comply with such a notification requirement. So there is a famous case on this that illustrates a scenario in which it's unreasonable. It's a case of Stag Line Limited versus Tyne Ship Repair Limited. Now, as, as it happens, this issue is only dealt with obiter in this decision, but it's a useful illustration nonetheless. So this involves the sale of a ship and supply of a ship. And there's a term within the original sale contract stating that in order for the ship to be eligible for repairs, the ship has to be returned to the Tyneside shipyard where it was originally supplied. 
And the question was, well, is that term fair and reasonable? This specification or stipulation that the ship must be returned. And one of the things that the court said in their decision was that, well, it probably wouldn't be fair and reasonable. After all, if a ship is in need of repair, if it's damaged in some way, it's very unlikely that it's actually going to be practically possible to sail it back to its original shipyard. So that will be an example of the uh, notification requirement or, uh, I guess, return to origin requirement in this case that wouldn't be fair and reasonable. So that then brings us to the fifth factor, and this is the final one that's set out in the schedule to the 1980 Act, with that courts or any party should bear in mind in determining whether an exclusion clause is fair and reasonable. And that is whether the goods involved in the sale were manufactured, processed, or adapted to the special order of the customer. And so the basic idea here is that if something is made to special order, it's more likely that the contract in question was the subject of some reasonable negotiation between the parties. And hence, it's less likely that the term in question is going to be unfair and unreasonable. Now, that said, there are also then clearly cases in which that's not true. But as a general rule of thumb, that's the idea here, that any negotiated term is, or negotiated contract rather, is less likely to be deemed unfair and unreasonable. And look, there's just a, a court case that illustrates this, the Edmund Murray Limited versus BSP International case, an English case again. And here you have the plaintiff company ordering a drilling rig from the defendants. And this drilling rig is supplied for a specific purpose. And the drill was made to order, and there was a very precise list of specifications provided in advance. And the defendants then included an exclusion clause that purported to deny liability if the rig failed to meet these specific requirements. So you might say, well, this is clearly a negotiated contract. Those specifications, they were put in there at the special request of the plaintiffs. So maybe it's not unfair and unreasonable to avoid liability for those for a failure to meet those specifications. But the court held that it was not fair and reasonable to have that exclusion clause. And this might be an example as well of, of a way in which courts are kind of hinting at or getting at Lord Denning's idea of the doctrine of fundamental breach in relation to these kinds of contracts too. And they're just applying this statutory rule about a term being unfair and unreasonable to cover that idea of fundamental breach. Okay, so those are the five factors that courts have to bear in mind, or again, any party really has to bear in mind, in determining whether an exclusion clause is unfair or unreasonable for the purposes of the Sale of Goods or Supply of Services Acts. So just to quickly recap on them, they have to bear in mind the strength of the bargaining power between the parties, whether there was any kind of special inducement to enter into the contract, including that term, whether there's alternative contracts or alternative options available to them for both of those ideas, both of those conditions or factors, whether the customer knew or ought to have known about the exclusion clause, uh, whether it is practically possible to comply with any condition that's specified, and whether the goods were made to special order. Now, as I say, these five factors are prevalent in English law, and they, you also find them in the European Union Unfair Terms Directive, or EC Unfair Terms Directive. And English cases have sometimes said very clearly that these five factors are non-exhaustive, and there are other things that courts can bear in mind or mention in determining whether a contract is, or a term is unfair and unreasonable. 
And I mention as well here in the notes to the course, uh, the case of George Mitchell Limited versus Finney Lock Seeds. So this case involves the sale of Dutch cabbage seeds from the defendant company. And so included within this product was a description that said that these are Finney's late special, late, sorry, late Dutch special seeds, and they're appropriate for harvesting in spring. So the plaintiff purchased these seeds and they planted the cabbage over 63 acres of land. In the end, the crop proved to be worthless because they had not actually been supplied with this Dutch cabbage seed that they had purchased, but rather an autumn cabbage seed of inferior quality. The defendant company tried to avoid liability by relying on an exclusion clause within the original contract that stated that they could substitute alternative types of seed whenever they saw fit and excluded liability for a variety of issues. So the question was whether it was fair and reasonable for such exclusion clauses to be included within the contract, and both the English Court of Appeal and House of Lords held that it was not reasonable and fair in those circumstances. And I'll just mention in passing that this is, interestingly enough, Lord Denning's last ever decision. This is the last case that he decided and his last attempt to influence the law of contract in England. It's a 1983 case. Um, In case you're interested, Lord Denning is possibly one of the first people to be cancelled because he was required to resign from his job after issuing some racist statements. Uh, I can't actually remember the exact details of it, but... I know that his career ended with uh, some degree of ignominy as a result of all this. Okay, so that now covers everything that I wanted to cover in relation to unfair terms, specifically exclusion clauses and limitation clauses, and their validity under the Sale of Goods and Supply of Services Act of 1980 and the Sale of Goods Act of 1893. The one last thing I want to mention, and as I said at the outset, I'm not going to cover this in detail in this audio lecture is the fact that any exclusion clause must also be valid under the European Directive on Unfair Terms in Consumer Contracts. And this is a directive that has been incorporated directly into Irish law in the 1995 EC Unfair Terms in Consumer Contracts Regulations Act of 1995. So one of the functions of this directive is to set down 17 examples of unfair terms in consumer contracts. And these are non-exhaustive examples. So there's other things that could count as being unfair, but these are illustrations of what might be deemed unfair. There's a lot of overlap in these 17 examples with the five factors that we just mentioned. And because we're talking about like 17 bullet points, essentially, illustrations of unfair terms, I'm I'm not going to go through all 17 in this podcast. It's really something that works better on the page reading it for yourselves rather than me just listing it out for you so as a result that's where we're going to conclude this lecture but i will conclude it with the imperative or instruction or directive myself that you should go and read these 17 examples of unfair terms and be at least somewhat familiar with them you don't have to memorize them or learn every single one of them off by heart but being familiar with the basic gist of them because they all kind of point to the same idea of what might count as an unfair term is useful not just for examination purposes but it's actually just useful in your own life to know what might count as an unfair term in a consumer contract so that's where i will leave it for this lecture